Well, let's begin reading in verse 44, Luke chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The final image of verse 49. Hold it in your mind for a minute. A group of small town Galileans, many of them women, in the big city Jerusalem, watching Jesus die and then hang dead on a cross. You probably know at least something of the details of the crucifixion. You probably have some understanding of what the crucifixion was about. If there's anything you don't know that you may need to know in order for this text to make the most sense is why the Romans crucified people and how they allowed the bodies to remain on the cross for many days following their crucifixion. The cross was reserved for enemies of the state. You were sentenced to crucifixion if Rome perceived that you had in some way provoked an uprising. This is the whole argument behind the Sanhedrin arguing for the crucifixion of Jesus is that Jesus is claiming to be a king. He's claiming to be a sovereign over Caesar. The crucifixion was reserved for treasonous people. And the reason the crucifixion was so useful in the case of treason was because it put on display the power of Rome and the powerlessness of those who would rise up against it. When you are literally pinned to a cross by your wrists and your feet and left to hang there as the birds pick at your flesh and the dogs at your feet and left to suffocate over two days helpless, as you're hanging there utterly helpless, suffocating for two days morally, it took a long time to die on a cross. And then after you've died, your body remains so that the scavengers can come and feed off of the body. The whole point of the cross was to display the foolishness of standing against Rome, the helplessness of anyone who would ever try to stand against Rome. The whole point of the cross was a public display of the foolishness of someone who thought they could stand against such a power. And a major feature of the cross's shame was to allow the body to remain on the cross for an extended period of time. We tend to forget how important burial was in the ancient world. Everybody in the ancient world wanted a good burial. Burial was very important, not only because of the belief of the afterlife, but also because of the high place of honor in that culture. Everybody wanted their bodies well cared for. So the greatest tragedy or the greatest harm that you perhaps could inflict on a person of the ancient world wasn't simply to kill them, but to allow their bodies to be desecrated in public. And so it was with their crucifixion. They would strip them naked, pin them to a low-hanging cross, allow scavengers to eat off of their perhaps alive, perhaps dead bodies, and allow that body to rot in public, displaying And so it will be for all who stand against Rome. 
You need to know those details because of what our text tells us. In verse 50, we are introduced to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 50, Luke 23. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. And other texts tell us that this was indeed his tomb. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This idea that Jesus would die so quickly from the cross and then that his body would be taken off the cross, that Pilate would allow for his body to be taken off the cross is remarkable. It's a remarkable detail. It is so unlikely that Pilate would have agreed to do this that some skeptics use this as evidence against the resurrection. The whole point of the cross was to put the victim to open public and lasting shame and for Pilate to agree that the body of Jesus come down so quickly after his death is indeed a remarkable detail and I bring that up to say this I don't think there's another person in this story that could have accomplished what Joseph of Arimathea accomplished Joseph of Arimathea was uniquely positioned to get access to Pilate and then to have the ability to persuade Pilate to release the body of what was now a public enemy of Rome. Uh, no one else could have gotten in the room. You know, we have that picture of those small town Galileans standing there watching all this. They would have thought in the moment that their, the body of their Jesus was going to suffer the fate that I just described. They would have expected there was nothing they could do and that the body of Jesus would have remained on the cross for a number of days and then thrown into some kind of pit. So Joseph's status uniquely allows him access to Pilate and uniquely gives him the, the juice, the weight, to actually get the body of Jesus removed. We tend to think about Joseph's wealth as, you know, the, the, the rich guy that had the tomb where Jesus could be buried, and that's absolutely true. But Joseph's status as a member of the council, the very member, the member of the very council that asked for Jesus to be crucified, Joseph's status as a member of that council is what got him in the room and really what gave him any kind of persuasion over Pilate. It's his place in this society that allows him the opportunity to get the body of Jesus. You know, just, just as a real quick application, that's just a good reminder of how much our lives can be used for good or for bad. You know, it was Joseph's status as a member of this council that allowed for him to have access and to get the body of Jesus. But it was this very council which caused the crucifixion in the first place. It's, it's just a reminder of, man, there are so many things in life that come down to these neutral things where if, we are apply, if we're using them with love and faith and hope, they can accomplish good things. And if we're using them in doubt and in cynicism, 
they can be used for bad things. I thought about that as I flew all these miles over the past day or so. You know, I was going, I was using this amazing technological breakthrough that allows us to fly 500 miles an hour in steel tubes, you know, halfway across the world to go and talk to people about the gospel. But, 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 at the, but, but at the very same time, the whole infrastructure, the whole idea of air travel is being used by people for nefarious things. At the same time, I got off the plane and there was a huge poster warning against human trafficking there in, in the country that I arrived at. You know, all of the security checks, they weren't because they were worried about guys going over and training others in the gospel, right? Right? So here's this neutral thing that has so much power for good, so much power for bad. For bad. That's, that's just one of those small points of application that we see in this story. We also just see this amazing reminder of the providence of God. You have all these Galileans standing by watching powerlessly. They think what they are going to have to do is watch the body of their Lord desecrated over a period of days. They would have felt truly powerless but through God's providence, he raised up somebody they had no connection with at all who had the influence and the access to get this thing done. You know, it's easy to assume that if things go a certain way, that there's no hope and that things are just going to turn out for the worst. And that some of our choices, I mean, I, I do this all the time, this, this whole slippery slope argument that you tell yourself, uh, this almost sense of inevitability of like, man, if things go that direction... They are just going, we've just entered the black hole of consequences. Things are just going to be terrible. It's so easy to become fatalistic and deterministic about outcomes and forget that in the, just the right moment, God can send somebody to completely change it. God can bring an unforeseen factor, an unforeseen variable into the equation and completely change the outcome. And that's what Joseph was for the Galileans, this, this surprising thing that kind of emerged out of nowhere, the place they least expected to give them an outcome they, they really didn't think they could have. But there's a really big elephant in the room when it comes to this text. You know, if you've been tracking with us in this series, we talked a lot about how this council conspired together, this council of small, the small council of powerful men conspired together in a whole group of political maneuverings to get Jesus on the cross. It wasn't easy what they did to get Jesus crucified was a Herculean political effort. And so you're reading this and you're saying Joseph was a part of that? Joseph was a part of this, uh, this council that conspired to kill Jesus? Luke actually kind of knows in advance this is going to raise some questions. So in verse 50, he says, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This, this is just so strange. Like this, is, this whole text is just strange. Here's a man who is part of the very council that sought the crucifixion of Jesus, now stepping in after the crucifixion of Jesus, asking for the body of Jesus and getting it. The whole thing's just strange. Joseph was a member of, a, a beneficiary of this kind of elitist class. If, if you were going to drain the swamp in Jerusalem, 
you, Joseph would have gone down the drain. Like he was, he was a total insider. So when it says that he's a good and righteous man who had not consented to the council's decisions, I'm kind of left scratching my head. If you read this with just fresh eyes, with almost a kind of skepticism, you get to this point and you say, well, what in the world is happening here? If he's this important, if he's a member of this council, how in the world did we get here? Why is Jesus on the cross in the first place? There's zero record of anyone standing up in this council for Jesus. Now, if you remember back to the beginning, of, to, 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 a few months ago in this series, we talked a lot about the fear of man. And I really felt at the time as if Luke was developing this very theme. And I think that it's paying off in this passage. Do we have a record of Joseph standing up and defending Jesus in this council? Do we have some record of Jesus doing, or of Joseph doing some kind of long filibuster? No, we do not. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us why Joseph was silent. John 19, 38. After these things, this is, this is John's account of the same thing we've just read. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes and spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. So the reason you don't have a record of Joseph standing up for Jesus in the council is because Joseph was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. Joseph was a slave to the fear of man. Joseph was caught in the snare of the fear of man. Earlier in John, there's a class of people that are described this way. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We've talked about a lot of stuff already in this message. Let's cleanse the palate and focus in on one simple subject. There are people in this room today whose lives are dominated by the fear of man. And now we are at a moment where Christ has been crucified and we must take a moment and see the outcome of this sin. That's what this sermon is fundamentally about. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's what we're doing right now. We're staring down this sin. There were a group of people all along who were persuaded that Jesus was the Messiah, but were quiet about it because they feared social and financial ramifications. Their love for approval and comfort trumped their love for Jesus. Their belief in the power of man trumped their belief in the power of God. 
their hope in the provision of money trumped their hope in the provision of God. Their joy in the approval of man trumped their joy in the approval of God. And after spending time with a group of people from a country who faced death for confessing Jesus, I have to admit, this whole concept of a secret disciple is hard to grasp. It's hard for them to grasp. That, that, that appears to be, by the way, the general tenor of the New Testament. Jesus actually says in Matthew 10, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Isn't cowardice the very first sin listed in the damnable sins in Revelation 21? Eight? Yes, it is. Thanks for asking. The fear of man is a snare, Proverbs 29, 25. And I want to be clear, it is a snare that will easily, so easily send you to hell. You will not only be condemned and damned because of the fear of man, because you've denied Jesus before men, but also because the fear of man will encourage you to keep secrets and put on a good face long enough to where you actually start believing those lies. It will keep you from confessing sin, which is so easily entangling you, and it will encourage you to live a lie. It will drive you away from biblical community over the slightest offense. It will push you away from biblical exhortation and admonishment, all because of this sin called the fear of men. So this is a big deal. This is a real big deal. The, the level of, of record-keeping and offense-taking and thin-skinnedness that threatens your soul is significant. The need for approval and praise and affirmation is significant. These are significant barriers in your Christian life, in my Christian life. This sin is a big deal. This sin is absolutely the root of pornography. And many other sins. So if you've experienced victory in that area, you must now experience victory in this area or face a relapse. You must deal with this human craving for approval at its root. Many of you know this. None of us know it as we ought to know it, but many of you know this. I'm telling many of you nothing new right now. You know this is a problem. And here's the thing. I didn't fly halfway around the world to beat you up. I flew halfway around the world to encourage you because this is basically a lesson in God's redemption of the fear of man. Joseph of Arimathea is a happy ending story about a man who struggled with this sin and was redeemed and found freedom and found hope. <laughs> this, is, this is a happy ending sermon. This is, this, is a good, this is a good news moment. The bad news is this is a terrible, consequential sin that not only will drive you to hell for denying Jesus in so many other ways, but will drive you into the darkness and away to the light in so many ways. Had to tell these pastors uh, 
this, uh, the other guy that I traveled with, who's also a church planner, we have a ton in common, uh, he had to tell them, just so you understand, that your congregation will over time begin to take the shape of your most pronounced sins and your most pronounced strengths. I think that's so true. That's an observation I can tell you I've seen time and time and time again. And therefore, I don't think it's without coincidence or God's provision that this issue is being dealt with this year in this way, so repeatedly in this gospel. But the good news is, is that Joseph found freedom. He, 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 he found freedom over something that caused a significant peril to his soul. Think about it this way. Going to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus was a dangerous move. More than that, I mean, he was going to ask for the body of a political enemy. And he was going to the person who had sentenced this man to not only crucifixion, but all of its requisite, disgusted, disgusting degenerations. Like, like asking Pilate to give the body of Jesus back was asking Pilate to cut short his own sentence, his own decision to reverse himself, in essence. And more than that, he was going to bury Jesus in his own tomb so that he would be forever linked with this Jesus, whom now Rome and the Jews were against. Joseph, all, as far as Joseph could see, he was choosing to fellowship with Jesus when Jesus' name was mud. Like Jesus at this stage is a disgraced, false prophet flash in the pan. This wasn't some kind of intellectual choice to affiliate with a rising star anymore, right? This was just love for Jesus. This inexplicable, strange, strangely emerging in time and in, in tenor, love for Jesus. He just, it was just faith. Was this action the end of his sin? Was this, was this the final nail in the coffin of the fear of man? I mean, maybe. You see that a lot. You see, you see powerful victory over this particular sin occur a lot between the cross and Pentecost. Maybe this was it. Maybe he continued to struggle in various ways, but something had certainly changed. So I, w- I want to take a moment... For those of you that say, yeah, I, I am thin-skinned, I'm, I'm easily offended, I, I, I deeply fear the disapproval of others, I long for the approval of others, uh, I tend to invest a lot in the power of other people to make me happy. I want you, if, if those things resonate with you, I just want to take a moment and ask you to stand, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Maybe that would be the cure. <laughs> I, want you to, I want you to get focused with me again here for a second. Just couldn't resist. Sorry. If that's you, listen, I want you to say, I want you to, say to yourself just right now, just, just quietly, you know, just, just acknowledge, this is me. This is a significant problem in my life. My happiness is too tied to what others think of me.
So I want you to kind of acknowledge that. And now I want you to say to yourself, and Jesus can change me. Jesus died for this sin. Jesus died to redeem sinners caught in all kinds of snares. This is my snare, and Jesus can give me freedom. How does that work? How does this freedom play out for Joseph? Well, the first thing is, is that he held true to what he had already attained. Held true to what he'd already attained. In Philippians 3, Paul goes on this beautiful rant about his passion, his singular passion for Jesus. He says, if anyone thinks that he has confidence in the flesh, I have more so circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not with a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not, not that I've already attained this. Or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. And I think he writes this and he thinks, he's thinking of his church as he's writing this. He's thinking of faces in the congregation, and he thinks, not all of them think this way. Not all of them are here. I just said a lot. I just kind of threw up on them. Uh, I just said a, a lot of glorious truths, but they're not all there. And he writes this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. I think Paul is saying, not everybody in this congregation loves Jesus this much. Because not everybody is mature in this way. He says, if you're mature, this is how you should think. But not everybody is. Not everybody loves Jesus with every scrap of their being in the same way I do. He says, God will reveal that to you. See how, see how that's, there's just no boasting in what he says because what he's saying is God, God did this for me and God will do it for you. In his time, in his progressive revelation, God will make that happen. And then he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. What he's saying is essentially God's already been working in your life. He's already brought you this far. If you're not all the way here, if you're not fully mature, if you're not this passionate, you know what? God, God got you this far. 
Just hold true to what you've attained. What God has shown you, be faithful to what God has shown you. What God has developed, be faithful to what God has developed. And I believe that that's what Luke is talking about when he refers to Joseph as a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. God had already been doing so much in Joseph's life. Yes, he had this gaping failure. He had this this massive inconsistency, such a glaring massive inconsistency that outside observers would wonder if you can even be a Christian and have this. But he held true to what he had. God gave him this faith to, to love goodness. And, and because he loved goodness, he wasn't so easily swept into the murderous frenzy of the council. He hadn't given his consent to the crucifixion of Jesus. Yes, he hadn't stood up. He hadn't advocated for Jesus. He hadn't been a faithful witness. But he loved goodness. He held true to what he had attained. Make no mistake, Joseph was not a mature follower of Jesus. A secret disciple is not a mature disciple. A person who loves the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God is not a mature disciple. If you are, if you have a life, uh, if you have a pronounced ongoing problem with the fear of man, you are not a mature disciple. Which is deeply offensive if you need me to value you right now. But you're just not. That's just not maturity. But let's hold fast to what we've obtained. God's getting you there. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. Yeah, you aren't where you need to be. Yeah, this is a big deal. Yes, this is so, uh, so irreconcilable with the outcome of the faith that you will one day have. But like Joseph, take a charitable view of God's providence and understand He has got you to where you are today. That was not you. That was His kindness. That was His faithfulness. It says that Joseph, uh, that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. I take this to mean that Joseph was not fully satisfied with the world in which he lived. He was either done or getting done quickly with the fake accolades of this power-driven society that he walked in. I think, I think of it almost as a guy who, who you know, finally got to go to this restaurant he loved, and he has just been engorging himself, and now he's just looking at this food and thinking, what did I ever see in any of this? This, this longing for the kingdom of God is this dissatisfaction with where things are. This, I, I don't want things to be where they are. I don't want this to be my drive. I don't want to need people in this sinful way. I want to love God and be loved by God and feel like that's enough for me. This looking for something more than the way things are. In some way that I don't know I can fully explain, both Joseph and Nicodemus and all these other people who walked in this secret disciple state 
We're simply seeds underground waiting to, be, waiting to bloom. And that it was God nurturing and caring for that seed all along. And so one of the basic things I would say to those who see this sin as sinful, this, this, this issue as a big problem, is to say, you ought to, man. It's It's terrible. By the way, I could easily talk about myself right now. I, I think that just removes sometimes the power of, of what's being said. So I'm going to talk to you. I want you to see this as terrible and disgusting and discordant with the truth of the gospel. But I want to see your hope and your freedom as absolutely in line with the hope and truth of the gospel. I am snared. Christ died to set me free. That's it. That's, that's all we got. The fear of man is a terrible sin. You should hate it. And you should have hope. Jesus saves him, his people from horrible sins. Two weeks ago, just turn the subwoofer off. Two weeks ago, we talked about keeping the cross connected with the curtain. The idea is... Let's keep the cross connected with God's presence. Well, this week I want us to make sure that we keep the cross connected to our vanity. I want us to make sure we keep the cross connected to our vanity. You know, I was in a tourist trap this week of sorts, sort of the eastern tourist trap. Man, I saw a lot of selfie sticks. I, I'm not going to talk about that because I think it would give those non-selfie stickers in this room, you know, some, some false sense of non-vanity. We're vain people. I really hope you understand how vain you are. You are a vain person. Everybody in this room has a secret longing to be worshipped in the place of God. You know, I can't say 100% that Joseph bought this nice tomb because he wanted to, even in death, be well thought of. I can't tell you that that was Joseph's motivation. I can tell you that that's usually what a high-priced tomb is about. Right? When people spend a lot of money and resources on a tomb that they will neither see or enjoy, there is usually connected to that a motivation to be remembered, i.e. thought of well, by others. It is essentially, in my opinion, I think, obviously, if you know your history and you know the Egyptians and so on and so forth, it is essentially a, one final sacrifice to the God of public opinion. The high price tomb is a, an investment in vanity. And I think that's a pretty poetic metaphor for the fear of man. The fear of man is nothing less than spending your life on death on investing your life on futility. It will not matter. It will come to nothing. What people thought of you, either good or bad, will come to nothing. The fear of man is like buying a very expensive tomb. The fear of man, in fact, is like spending all of your time at work every day, taking your paychecks home and sending them to the mausoleum builder so that your whole sum total of your life Listen, this is why we need freedom and forgiveness from the fear of man. This is how terrible it is. Wholesome of your life, 70%, 80%, 90%, 100% of your life was earning 
the money to pay for the place you will neither see nor enjoy so that others who don't matter will think highly of you. That's the fear of man. And Joseph had faith from God to surrender this vanity to a crucified Christ. Don't you want that? Don't you wish you could put all your chips in right now and just be free of this nonsense? Well, there's also something to be thought of regarding the body of Christ. Joseph's fear of man problem had a direct connection to his loyalty to the body of Christ. In this particular way of looking at this text, we're doing something called allegory, which is generally not, not favored in our circles. But in this particular case, I think, is there one of the right applications. The idea is simple. Joseph overcoming his fear of man meant honoring the body of Christ. And throughout Scripture, we see that your problem with the fear of man will directly correspond in various ways to your relationship with the local body of Christ, the church. Throughout Scripture, we see that the half in, half out, oh, I'm offended, so I'm not here, and now I'm, I am, I'm less offended, so I'm back, that all of this manifestation of the fear of man shows up in one particular place consistently, the local church. So that this is sort of the battleground where this fight must take place. It, it isn't the, the, the ultimate place where we're going to be killed for being Christians. It just feels like it sometimes. So that the local church becomes the place whether you will either see this sin killed or you will not. It becomes the place where this is repeatedly challenged by people who are our brothers and sisters who offend us, who, who, who misunderstand us, who sometimes understand us too well. But there's some connection between Joseph overcoming his deep-seated vanity and narcissism and being with the local church, the body of Christ. Most importantly, I would just point you to the cross. And I just, I just wrote a prayer. This, I was so moved by this, that this hope that you have, that I have in Christ, I just wrote this out as a prayer. And I'm Southern Baptist roots, and you know, every head bowed, every eye closed kind of thing. You know, that, I think that still has some use. If, if you find it useful to, to close your eyes and pray this with me, fine. If not, fine. It's either way, I'm going to read this prayer that I wrote. Jesus, you died because of this sin. You bore God's wrath against this kind of weasley cowardice. But it is more than cowardice. My desire to be worshipped and esteemed is higher than my desire for you to be worshipped and esteemed. It's even more than that. When I walk in the fear of man, I show which currency I trust in. I show that I believe that other people have more power to make me happy or sad than you do. 
And it is worse than that. How many people have I failed to love by being this way? By being easily offended? By keeping record of wrongs? By presenting a false version of myself and then complaining that I'm lonely? By playing along with cultural injustices that should be confronted? How It's worse than that. How... How often is this sin fought against my own sanctification, my own becoming like Christ? By hiding in small talk and avoiding hard conversations? By failing to confess things I really need help with? So Jesus, you bore God's wrath against all these terrible, all the terrible ways that this sin neither worships God nor loves my neighbor. I deserve to be condemned for it on multiple accounts. But God's just anger against my sin has been emptied on the cross. And now, though I don't deserve it, I am free. I am free to feel and be filled by the love of God. I'm free to see the goodness of God for me. I'm free to be lavishly affirmed and exalted in by, by God. And I'm free to fight. I'm free to fight against this sin. And I'm free to fight against the temptation to call this sin niceness or courtesy. And I'm free to call it what it is. Cowardice. A wanton craving for self-worship. The trust in human power to make me happy a selfish and unloving way to live. And I am free to hope and believe that you are a great redeemer, that you came to free me from this snare. And I am free to see many examples in the Bible of you saving men and women who had this very sin as a pronounced problem in their life. Lord Jesus, you bore the wrath of God, the anger of God against this sin and all of its various components. And you gave me righteousness in the Holy Spirit to fight this sin and see true freedom emerge. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You know, in the next chapter, after the resurrection, Jesus said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You were witnesses of these things. You need forgiveness and you need freedom from the fear of man. And you have that opportunity through the gospel. And you have the gospel because some men long, long, long ago overcame the fear of man. And then another generation overcame the fear of man. And then another generation overcame 
the fear of man. The only way we have the gospel message right now is because Jesus accepted reviling and slander and castigation and alienation and triumphed so that his disciples could find forgiveness and freedom from this sin because they all, they all walked out on Jesus in one way or another. And so it continues. God's entire plan of redemption depends on his ability to deliver people from this sin. And you may have heard that described in some way that would leverage guilt and saying, if you don't overcome this, the next generation will not hear the gospel. Well, you know, it's, you know, part of that's true, except that ain't going to happen. God's people do overcome this and the next generation will hear the gospel. And God's kingdom will continue to expand as he frees people from this sin. So yes, it's terrible. You ought to hate it. You ought to smell the blood. You ought to look at the cross and see the consequence of this sin. But you also ought to know he's been freeing people from this particular lock for quite some time. And he has grace and power for you this morning. Let's celebrate that victory today as we receive communion. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I want you to come this morning as people who believe in a Jesus who frees people from deep pits and partake of the reminder, the remembrance of his body and blood that made it possible for you to have forgiveness and freedom over a life-dominating sin. I want you to walk up here with courage, with chutzpah, with guts, and say, my Jesus saves people who are deeply broken, deeply hurt, deeply entrapped, and he will help me. Let me pray. Lord God,